Hello and welcome everyone to FF Plus, your spoiler-free outlet for movie reviews, entertainment recommendations, and discussion. I'm your host, Aaron White, and we're excited today to bring you a little bit of a treat. Not only a movie review, but also pairing it with an interview. Patrick and I will be speaking with Ben Berkman, the director of a new documentary about the athletic game show competition American Gladiators that aired from 1989 to 1996. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen. It helps tell people that we are worth the time to check out and is much appreciated. Also, be sure to follow us on all of our social media channels. You can find links to the personal channels and also the ones for the show in the show notes of each and every episode. So before the interview, I wanted to give you my thoughts on the film. This is the American Gladiators documentary from ESPN Films and their 30 for 30 series. It features Johnny Ferraro, Darren McBee, a.k.a. Malibu, Michael Horton, a.k.a. Gemini, Lynn Red Williams, a.k.a. Saber, the late William Billy Smith, a.k.a. Thunder, and Selena Bartonek, a.k.a. Electra. It is directed by Ben Berkman and co-directed by Kirk Johnson. Cinematography is by Dan Adlerstein. It runs 170 minutes and is broken into two parts. What's it about? The film takes an unconventional approach to the epic tale of the famed reality competition show. What begins as a traditional sports documentary soon gives way to bigger themes of greed, divergent narratives, and ultimately questions how history itself is written. Now, I think that part one of this documentary is just about perfect. It focuses on the game show's creation, its success, and it also reveals the underlying issues through many firsthand accounts from the gladiators and contestants about what was going on behind the scenes and what it was like to be a part of the show. It also is consistently teasing out a dispute over creation rights between Johnny Ferraro and a man named Dan Carr. Unfortunately, the second part doesn't quite match the energy and the interesting reveals that are coming in the first part. But let's focus on that first part for a second. So we get a lot of time with Johnny Ferraro, who is the creator, credited as the creator of American Gladiators. He has a past as an Elvis impersonator and really brought a strong eye for production value and promotion to this brand that was able to help make it take off in the late 80s, early 90s when we were becoming obsessed with reality TV for the first time. As I mentioned, there is this sort of question about whether or not Johnny Ferraro was solely responsible for the creation of the show, and that gets explored more in the second part, but it's pretty fascinating how the filmmakers are transparent with their interviews that take place with Ferraro. There are times where you will hear Ben Berkman and or Kirk Johnson speaking and asking questions. You may even see them on camera, which is not something that usually happens in a documentary, but I really appreciated it because I felt like it added a level of honesty to this. When they were speaking with Johnny Ferraro and they would ask him about Dan Carr and he would say, no, we're not going to do that in the documentary. I'm not going to answer those questions. They put that in there 
they put in them asking him and probing him for more information. So there's really no question here about bias and about them portraying it in a way that is for their slanted purposes. They are portraying this just exactly as Johnny Ferraro wanted it to be portrayed. And and he had a lot of control over what did get put in and get left out of the documentary. And I think that they walked that line really smartly in an interesting way. The other parts of the first half that really hit are the fact that we are meeting all of these gladiators. Now, we learn about gladiators that wouldn't be a part of the show. And there's some interesting background about why that is. But the ones that did participate in the documentary are extremely open. And they all had somewhat similar experiences. And it's really just fascinating stuff to kind of see where the idea of the American Gladiators came from and what it looked like in its rawest form. Spoiler alert, it's not good. (laughs) It really looks bad. And it kind of makes you amazed that it turned into what it did. But it also talks about what it was like for them to deal with this instant level of success and how they were maybe taken advantage of with regards to pay and with regards to how their health was managed and things of that nature. I really thought that the balance in this first half was fantastic. It's got drama. It's got some tinge of tragedy. It's got the rah-rah get up and cheer moments where you're really excited about reliving these big bombastic events from the show's past. And I thought it was just fantastic. The second part is almost as long and just doesn't have that same propulsion. It really revolves around the search for this man, Dan Carr. Does he exist? And if he does, was he really responsible for being a co-creator of the show? And what's his involvement now? Why is it the way that it is? And can we get him on camera and kind of hash this all out? And so it turns into a bit of investigative journalism which I also enjoy, and I didn't dislike the second half. I just think that because the first half was a very typical kind of documentary about a show, and the second half was so different, it does feel a lot slower, and I think that it does drag out a bit too much. Maybe they could have tightened that second half up and maybe just made this all one big longer documentary. I understand that's not ideal for ESPN and the way that they were going to air this. So I get it, but it does go on a little bit too long. Uh, They end up doing some voiceover narration for dramatized scenes involving Dan Carr, which I did not like at all. And so you can see that they use a mix of different styles in their approach to filming this. And I thought that that was great. It kept it fresh, even when I didn't necessarily prefer what they were doing at a given moment. This does take some twists and turns. It goes in some very intriguing directions and you will learn a lot about a show that you watched and you just kind of enjoyed on a very surface level because you thought it was cool to see people compete athletically and beat each other up and they had these big personalities that were worth rooting for in a kind of big time professional wrestling way. This is a rock solid documentary and 
I really do highly recommend it. Uh, it will be available on ESPN debuting part one on May the 30th and then part two on May the 31st. After that, it will be available anytime on ESPN Plus as part of their 30 for 30 series collection. So yes, Patrick and I both do recommend the documentary. Maybe we'll talk about it a little bit more after the interview. I don't know for sure. Guess you'll have to stick around, listen to it, and find out. So, Ben, I am Aaron White. Nice to meet you. My co-host Patrick is here. Hello. We are Great. both huge documentary fans and, and big sports fans, big ESPN guys. So it was a real joy to get a chance to watch this awesome production that you have put together about the American Gladiators, because we're both in the age group that grew up in our, what, Patrick, early teens, I guess, when this started? Yeah, yeah, it was pre-teen to teen, like in the late 80s, early 90s. That was when we were... How old are you guys? We're in our 40s. Yeah, yeah. I'm 40. I grew up watching American Gladiators, for sure. You know, it was... It was just in the zeitgeist, right? It was just like always there, <laughs> you know. <laughs> right. And 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 for I think for a young kid at that time, it was just like you know, how can you not pay attention to it? it it's got these what like kind of real life superheroes and you know this crazy bright saturated spectacle. So yeah, same for me. Well, maybe the biggest layup and obvious starting question of all, but what was your path to making this documentary? What got you interested in telling the story of American Gladiators? And also, do you have a partnership with ESPN? Did you pitch this to them? Did they pitch this to you? How does that come about? Yeah, um, it started, I think, like right before the pandemic. This guy, Danny Gabay at Vice Studios, reached out to me and said that they were thinking about doing a documentary about American Gladiators. And I said, okay, you know, I used to watch it when I was a kid, but, you know, I wouldn't, I don't want to just do a straight up nostalgia doc. That's, that's not necessarily what I do. And um, I'd, uh, I'll look into it, uh, see if there's a, a story there. And then I started looking into it and and very quickly I found a number of things that were really interesting to me that were kind of surprising and you know kind of revolving a bit more around the creation of the show and and uh the kind of history of it coming out of Erie, Pennsylvania, in addition to a number of things, a number of characters involved in the the original TV show. And I was like, oh wait, there's some stuff there that that I think we could do something actually like really kind of interesting and smart and being able to speak about kind of very macro things through the telling of the history of, of this, you know, small moment in time, American Gladiators, you know? And then we pitched it to ESPN and they said, yeah, let's do it. That's awesome. I mean, I, I mean, yeah. that's a great way to, to get it elevated as far as viewership goes, clearly. Mm -hmm. um, had you worked with ESPN before on anything? No, and I'm 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 you know traditionally not much of a sports guy. You know, I'm kind of more of a film guy. I guess I was a nerd in high school, so the jocks picked on me. So yeah, not not too much of a sports guy. I came at this, of course, through through storytelling and you know whatnot. But I I did back in 2019. I had a documentary, uh, my first documentary called the Amazing Jonathan documentary was kind of traveling around different film festivals. And that's when I met Adam Newhouse, who was our 
ESPN exec who who took the pitch. And and he's a really cool guy, really gets it, and was a big fan of the Jonathan Doc, and, and we became buddies. So he, he was the guy that received the pitch and received it well. So thank you, Adam Newhouse. I look at this documentary, and one of the things that stands out to me um, in it is, you know, you're going to interview cast and crew and obviously the creator, co-creator behind it. And part of the documentary was the conspicuous absence of, of Nitro and a couple other gladiators. Did you have trouble um, outside of those two, as they kind of explained in the, it was explained in the documentary, their absence? Did you have trouble tracking down some of the other original gladiators and, and what, what, what kind of the the attitude or was there reluctance? Was there excitement about it, uh, about them being part of the doc? Mixed, very mixed. And sometimes absolutely trouble reaching some people. Yeah, it was really kind of a confusing, interesting moment. Sometimes me, sometimes our associate producers, sometimes a researcher, like trying to get information for these gladiators, for these, you know, anyone associated with the show through social media. And then some, you know, wouldn't write back. Some denied us, some were kind of interested, said they'd do it, then denied us. So interesting people. I think everyone had their own experience with the show and balanced a lot of good and and a lot of bad. So even Turbo, I remember, maybe did I get on the phone with him? I think so. I think I spoke with Turbo and his sister was like trying to get him to do it. But Turbo was like an extremely modest person and didn't want to like be involved in this like didn't want to point the thing you know point point the attention back at him at this point in his life so it was really interesting but yeah very very pleased with the gladiators we we were able to include in our documentary they kind of seem like uh kind of the best they're the best <laughs> oh yeah i mean they all have such interesting perspectives on their time with it and there's you know clearly parts of that that overlaps and clearly they all also have little pieces that affected them in very different ways because they're different human beings with different lifestyles and families and stuff. I actually wanted to ask you about something about documentary filmmaking that is always fascinating to me. And, and that is the way that these interviews occur. So, so as a viewer, we're just usually we're just watching a person on screen talking. Yeah. That you have approached it a little bit differently stylistically in that you actually put yourself on the camera at times. So we heard you ask questions. That's not a usual occurrence. And we actually see you in the flesh, in the documentary, sometimes set up in the room where you can see that, okay, this interview is taking place in someone's house and there are cameras right next to them and ring lights and all of these things like mics. What was your reasoning behind doing that? And I'll tell you, I personally appreciated it. I found it to be very honest and transparent in a way that docs are not usually, and that usually you can sort of wonder about a bias. But I thought that because you were putting your own questions right there front and center, there was no question about how you were just trying to get the truth. Was that sort of your reasoning or was it some other like uh, reason for this? I, I think um, probably first and foremost, I'm not the first person, the first filmmaker and the first documentarian to, you know, be seen in their documentary or to see a light or a microphone. I do personally like transparency and I like re self-reflective stuff. But like at the end of the day, what are we talking about? It's like, 
people are watching a documentary. Someone made the documentary for a reason and there's like people behind it and there's cameras there. And like, why hide that? That makes, that's like a dumb lie when you're trying to tell the truth. So why not like allow whatever to happen to happen or for you to see whatever? <laughs> like it just, the artifice of, no, mm, oh, we are a documentary and this is what it looks like. And, and and I, I don't know. I, I, I hate any rule you don't need to ascribe to. <laughs> There's no real clear conscious. This is the reason why it's just mm -hmm. like um, what I like. <laughs> it's what I like. <laughs> yeah. When, when I watch it, I agree with Aaron. I think there's a there's a rawness and an honesty that comes from sort of revealing the man behind the curtain, because it's essentially you saying this is my story. This is the the story that I'm telling and we think about documentaries, any amount of bias is going to go into anything that you create. And a documentary is no exception. You might be spitting out facts, but they're facts based on a narrative that you're, you're telling. And so I found that very refreshing because it almost felt as though this is, it, it put emotion behind this story and it didn't feel highly produced. It didn't feel very like smooth and, and, and slick. And that was good. Because I think the story of American Gladiators, as you tell it, is one of raw, that it's not a happy ending. It's not necessarily like, and after Gladiators, all these guys went on to be great wrestlers at some point, or this guy went on to be a great referee. No, I mean, some of there, there's a lot of regret, and you show that in there. And that's and something really interesting that sort of ties into the show based off of your approach to how you film this. Specifically, I thought there was a the abruptness of the differences between the first and second part. So how it's told in part one and how it's told in part two were stylistically different. We, we open up in part two with this, like this British accent of someone telling the story. And I found it very interesting in terms of like, okay, well we were here and now we're here. Was there, was there a, a conscious decision to kind of, make the parts equal like independent stories as they connected to each other? Or was this just like, let me try this with the second part, because this sounds like something, a good way to, to tell this part of the story. A little bit of both. It, it was a conscious, I like the concept and the reality to some degree of, uh, as a story grows, as a story continues and, and, and it grows at the end of part one, I would say it, it grows. We find out some information that we didn't know before, and it 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 begs the question of what's really going on. So at the beginning of part two, allowing that growth to take to take shape and to fulfill that question that's asked at the end of part one, in order to fulfill that, get the answer. You know, we went. I don't think it like changes like like a ninety degree turn or whatever, and it's not like black and white or something, but it is it shifts and verite is introduced and in this investigative journalistic kind of thing is is introduced yet you know the documentary continues it's the same johnny interview it's the same core interviews from everyone and we we eventually introduce some recreations that i take issue with you saying this doc isn't slick i agree that there's elements that are very transparent and whatever but i think the recreations are awesome and oh slick. no no i I completely agree. And the, the second half specifically with Dan, that whole bit was phenomenal. I love stuff like that. This is me going back 
to my unsolved mysteries days and being like, this is it. This is Robert Stack in the dramatization. It's absolutely phenomenal. I love that style. When I say slick, what I mean is it doesn't feel highly produced. It doesn't feel, it feels put together and it feels like, it's like a stand-up comedian who just flows for an hour and it looks like he's just telling you stories off the top of his head. But in the background, he's rehearsed this thing for months and months and months. That's kind of how I felt walking in, walking out of this documentary. It was like, man, that just felt like my buddy from down the street just like came up with this amazing idea and put together this great story. The investigative journalism shift or that that move was so great for me because it made me feel like I was watching a true crime documentary. Like those you see like on Netflix or something, they have like multiple parts. And I was like, all right, I'm ready to tune in. And so for an audience that gets to watch this like one night after the other, I'm kind of like, you can envy me because I got to watch these things back to back. If I had watched the first half and then go, oh my gosh, I got to wait 24 hours to figure out what happened. You know, who is this Dan guy? It really added to that investment and immersion that I wanted to know more about the gladiators, but but specifically about who this mystery Dan guy is. And so the way that you put that in the form of that dramatization, I thought was amazing using his book as a means to sort of skirt around the legality of what Ferraro was sort of putting at you. So a great, great approach to the second half of the doc. Thank you. So about your time with Johnny, which you mentioned, you know, is the through line really through or from beginning to end in both parts of this. Johnny Ferraro, the self-proclaimed sole creator of American Gladiators. The transparency that I was talking about earlier with your interview style, I wondered if how how was that for you? How was it for you working with someone who was at times not fully forthcoming, but from what I gathered from the way that the documentary is put together, this was something that he wanted to be part of, but yet he wanted to retain so much control. Uh, And was that difficult for you as a filmmaker, like having to decide what you could and couldn't put in? Yeah. uh, First and foremost, Johnny is clear that he is not the sole creator of American Gladiators. He gives mention to Dan, but one might feel that it's not nearly enough mention. And then he kind of often will backtrack on that and be like, you know, I'm the reason that it happened. And Dan only had three hours on, you know, in 1982. And, but, you know, the reality I think speaks for itself, but was it, you know, I, that's part of what the documentary is, includes too, is, is filmmaker subject dynamic and relationship and and how can one tell a full truthful story just through one person's account so not having dan be able to speak for himself was something that uh, me as a filmmaker and any journalist out there like would not be comfortable with so yeah johnny is a very interesting unique person and at the same time I get it. I can see how someone can want a narrative put out so much for other people, but for themselves. And I think, especially as the years go on, you kind of, some people might start kind of buying some of their, their own stuff, you know? And, and it's at times hard to know if, 
an individual actually fully knows or is accepting the truth or if they've convinced themselves of something else. So yeah, no, tons of challenges throughout this with telling a full story and Johnny's desire to control the narrative and control the documentary. I don't blame a man. Like I'm a very controlling person myself. Like sometimes doing interviews, you know, I'm like, okay, let's mention this. Let's not mention this and blah, blah, blah. Like I want my story told correctly by you guys. Johnny wants his story told correctly by me. But what is correct? His version of correct might not be everyone's version of correct. And that's like, you know, again, we're not covering any crazy new ground here, but we're doing it in a subject matter, a sports documentary about a weird ass sports competition show. And the fact that we're talking about truth and how history is told and like that's my biggest joy for this project. One of my biggest joys is that what should be like, and there, just so you know, there is a Netflix, there's a competing American Gladiators documentary coming out on Netflix in June. Oh, check it out. It's called Muscles and Mayhem, and it's got Nitro. It's got all the glads that a lot of the glads we didn't get. There's who knows what it's going to be. We could pretty much guarantee it's not going to be what ours is. Are they going to be talking about how history is written throughout time and Native American, you know, culture? And like, I, I, <laughs> I don't know, but probably not. So, well, I think what I think what your documentary does really well is that it encapsulates that statement of there's three kinds of truth. There's your truth, there's my truth, and the actual truth. And I thought that one of the things I enjoyed about the interviews with Johnny is that despite his ability or desire to control, it showed a bit of his personality. Like, I don't think a controlling person on screen necessarily would try to depict that. So it's, there is an authenticity to who he is that he's unapologetic about. I also love the fact that he was a former Elvis impersonator. I can definitely see that. And he's kind of kept that, that, uh, persona. But I think that that's what makes this documentary so much fun to watch is that you never stop asking the question, what is the truth? And even if you get to the end of this two-part thing and you're still questioning, it does not change your enjoyment of the the documentary. It's a well-told story and I still have questions and I'm supposed to because I know that from this approach, um, you and Kirk didn't tell the whole story because you can't documentaries never do that. They tell a story that gets at a part of a person's life or an event's life. And I think that this is right in the, the, the thick of, of that type of approach. And one of the things that I'm fascinated with is this idea of duality of directorship. We have the Coen brothers, we have the Duffers with stranger things. And when I see a, a partnership here, I always think about, okay, how does that work? How did that work for, for you and Kirk, I know that you've got some feature credits. I don't know if he does necessarily, but did you guys divide and conquer? Were there specific parts that you said, I'll take these? Was there like a like a pilot-co-pilot kind of relationship? How did that work for both of you in doing this feature or this documentary? Yeah, um, it's it basically our, our working relationship started on my first, our first documentary, uh, the, Amer the amazing Jonathan documentary on Hulu now. Check it out. Kirk was my right-hand man and was very helpful in helping to kind of get it across the finish line. And we had a lot of fun working on it. So then when I got the opportunity to do this documentary, I mentioned like to, to Vice and to ESPN, I think like, I'll only do it if I have like these people, like I need this lawyer, I need, you know, um, my buddy John Mugar to help 
you know, have feedback and we can pay him hopefully some money and, and Kirk. And uh, yeah, so then we set out making this thing. Kirk as my right-hand man, story producer, whatever, you know, and very much acting as a producer. And basically deep into production, towards the very end of production, I found out that I had this like rare kidney <laughs> condition and I had to go get a surgery. Uh, I'm fine now, all's good. But at that time, I was like, I really don't know what's going to happen here. I've got to step away from the project, go do, do this surgery, and maybe I'll come back. Maybe I won't. Kirk, you keep on running with it. Uh, and, and he did with the editors. And then eight weeks later, I was back and and we continued forward. So from a that's how the the the, you know, co-directing credit uh, came about and and is certainly warranted. Yeah, I, I, I'm very particular with pro how things are produced, with how things are edited, you know, so so I think I think for sure, like, this doc is is certainly like my baby, but Kirk is a fantastic person to, you know, right hand man co director to have there to bounce ideas off of to add value to your ideas to say, like, five times no that's not a good idea and then on the fifth time you gotta you gotta listen to him <laughs> to help yeah he, he he makes things better it wasn't a full like divide and conquer but he was uh super supportive um and and uh important in the in the process yeah well, that's awesome Could... yeah not cohen brothers not daniels <laughs> guy not gonna be burtman guy. and johnson going forward <laughs> well yeah, it worked out right. i mean it, it seems like johnson. it's just the singular vision so i think that sure says he did a great job because it, you can't tell it's seamless throughout the the tone of the documentary as far as it maintaining that vision that you had. How long did you guys work on this? Because I won't say exactly who unless you care, but I, I did notice, you know, someone that is in the documentary has since passed away a couple of years ago. And so it got me thinking, was this a super long production time for this? Or has it just been sitting around waiting to come out? Both. <laughs> uh, and maybe not super long production or post time, but long. It's a long doc. We got a long doc here. We started main production. Well, like basically, I, I think overall it's been it was two and a half years or so from the time we either started talking about it through delivering. I think it's been two, I, th I want to say two and a half years. And then so we delivered it in, in October, I believe. And yeah, it's just been kind of sitting there uh, until now, even though we just recently had to change like a music cue and like there's been stuff that makes it feel still very active and annoying. <laughs> but yeah, really long, painfully long, painful process. But I, I don't know if it's me. I don't know if it's doc filmmaking or I don't know if it's others <laughs> that caused it to be so long and painful. Kind of a follow-up to that that I'm just curious about. Do you personally work on more than one project at the same time? So or I like, are you locked in for two and a half years on this? And I that's all you think about? So far, like in documentary, I can't do more than one thing. When I go into something, I go, I have gone deep. I've kind of put parts of basically my life on hold to do these things. And it's it's not a good, healthy way to do it. So no, I like... I've even gotten like, I think, commercial short term kind of commercial jobs opportunities while making this doc. And I, I wouldn't even think of it. Like, if you guys like this doc, the reason you like it is because of the amount of time and love and care and stress and pain 
that has been put into it. <laughs> and I'm really like, there's only so many times, especially with docs, like you get up to bat. So you better come right and knock it out of the park kind of thing, or at least try. So doing another project or whatever, like I know a lot of directors do it and that's great, but I, I couldn't even imagine that right now. I do, I am at a point in my life or I want to be at a point in my life and I want to be a, at a point in my career that I don't, I'm not going to be doing this again. <laughs> like I want to balance life and, and work and I have not been doing that well. So that's a goal moving forward. That's a good goal to have. And looking at this being a two-parter, the I, I know that when you go into creating a documentary, the idea is, okay, this might need to be a, you know, this long, or you're not looking at duration. You're looking at, okay, is my story going to be told, the one that I'm telling? Was there ever any consideration? I don't know how much footage we didn't get to see. I'm sure there was a lot. Was there ever any consideration about making this longer multi-episodic besides just two? Or was there sort of a, an agreement? Okay, ESPN says, here's your 30 for 30. You can have two parts. Bring it in to, to this duration. They started, everyone started, I think we started pitching this as a four-part doc. Then in the pitching process, I think we went to like three parts. And then by the time it was the deal was all done, it was like, we're going to do two parts. I don't, I forget all the logic behind it, but we were playing with that all the time. Well, does that answer your question? <laughs> no, no, it, it does. I mean, it's just, it's, that's a probably a separate conversation. I was just, it makes me curious when you put something like this together, that's not a feature. I mean, features usually are driven by MPAA, you know, that kind of stuff. The studio says it can't be over 220 um, when it comes okay. to documentaries and knowing that this is a two-part deal, it felt like, not that I was missing anything, but it felt like I could spend more time with this sort of whole story because there's the Ferraro side of it. There's the gladiators. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, well, and that's, yeah, that's, yeah, that's what, uh, like the fire fest, the two documentaries that came out from Netflix and Hulu are such a fantastic, uh, collaboration without being that because they tell more of the story. And so maybe we'll get that with Netflix, but I did feel like, okay, this could have been multi-part because there's so much here that probably wasn't explored. So yeah, that answered my question. Yeah, and 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 ESPN would would have wanted more, or said they, you know, all all the all the outlets or streaming services and whatever. Everyone just wants more. I don't know if that's always a good thing, you know. Like, yeah. I feel like this is really. I feel like the doc is really long. Like, not in a bad way. It's just the truth is, it's long. It's I'm I'm used to an hour and a half tight movie, and now. You know, there's Babylon, there's all these movies that are four hours or Scorsese's making everything so long, you know, so people, I guess people are getting used to it, but it just doesn't feel right to me. It's like, I'm an editor, get it down to as short as it has to be, or as short as it can be while still being really great. Like, let's not bore people. Preach. Preach. <laughs> He's oh, very gosh. much in your camp with that. I'm the crotchety <laughs> old man that's like, get it two hours. I'm fine. No two and a half hours for me. Leave it, leave it at two. Yeah, what are we doing? <laughs> oh, dude, Bo is afraid. Woo! Fuck yeah. you, man. Sorry, <laughs> but, but uh, tighten that up a bit. Yeah. No offense, Ari. <laughs> I want to end with a couple fun questions for you. One of which is that we always like to ask our guests. What is a movie that they have seen that they particularly remember making them feel in a very strong emotional way, um, whatever that emotion is. And then the second is what would your gladiator name be <laughs> if you had to choose one? 
I was given one yesterday, actually. Uh, oh. I, was, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Tim and Eric. Maybe not. Oh, if you don't know Tim and Eric, check out I'll Tim and Eric. I'll look them up. One of the, I, I was, Tim has a live streaming talk show and they, they had me and Malibu on yesterday, which is, you should watch that episode. It's nuts. It's, or like, first of all, it's called Office Hours and it's just, it's just a nuts live talk show. You'll see what I mean. But ours was, I think, particularly nuts. What was I saying? Oh, they had this promo that they released yesterday morning. They gave me the name Autour, <laughs> which I, I'm into. Ah. Autour apparently is my Gladiator name, which I, I don't mind. No, um, that's good. good. That's good. And so the other, oh yeah, this is going to be tough. Oh my God. Well, when E.T. turned white, when I was a kid, when he was dying, that was very emotional. When the horse went into the mud in, um, never the ending story. Man, the never ending never story. story as a <laughs> yes. kid, what is that? That, that changes your heart and your mind of just this sadness, this, this dour, sour, oh boy. McCabe and Mrs. Miller, I, I wouldn't say maybe emotional, but just the palette of that movie makes me feel so comfortable, so like calm or something. There's been so many. But you guys, is there one that, what's your ones? Oh, gosh. Oh, that's unfair. <laughs> we have a right to change them every time we ask the question because there are so many. I think I would probably say Interstellar is probably one of my biggest in terms of just the the grandiousness and the the father daughter relationship. It's it's so you know it's it's our Aaron. I say it's our two thousand one, and uh, there's a lot about it. It's also long, so I say that sort of ironically <laughs> for a guy who doesn't like long movies. It really it's resonates with me emotionally. Long. Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah, I mean, my most recent, probably strongest one might still be Marcel Lachelle, which she was on from last year. I don't know yeah. if you got a chance to check it out, but it was a movie that I swear by and I could watch once a week just to reset myself and feel better about the world, honestly. Yeah, no, I I, I, I saw that as well. And I, I was uh, I cried. I know the director, Dean Fleischerkamp, he's he's a buddy. Yeah, they did great. That was a really cool movie. Well, your answers are good. We appreciate them. They were great. Patrick, do you have any other questions? I don't. Ben, it was great having you on. We loved having this conversation with you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thanks for watching the whole thing, and thanks for wanting to talk. All right, Patrick. So I, I wanted to like get a little bit further into this now that uh, Ben is gone <laughs> with you. <laughs> you asked me this question when we were developing our notes for the interview and you said something about what this show had to do with like how one of the episodes they, they tried to bring it back and there was a writer's strike is that right i'm trying to remember how yeah it so out. so the so the way it broke down is that part of the documentary mentions the reboot of american gladiators just so happened to coincide with the 2008 writer's strike and it was mentioned that coincidentally when American Gladiators originally aired, it was around the time of another writer's strike. And so it got me curious. We are now in the middle of a third writer's strike. And so I sort of laughingly say, are we going to get reboot number three of American Gladiators? Is it time for American Gladiators to come back because the writer's strike is happening? <laughs> I mean, like history would say so, right? I guess the question would be, would we watch it? Like, would American Gladiators succeed right now? 
in this modern day environment. We're still I, kind of obsessed with reality TV, but it's it's in a little bit of a different way than it was at the time. Well, I think for me, sports reality television is not really doing it for a lot of people. Um, what I will tell you is that the thing that does sell is the contender side of it. So the big thing that my family and I watch during the summer is American Ninja Warrior. And what makes that show so great is the obstacles are fantastic, which I think calls back to American Gladiators, the games that are created for that. And there's some funness to that. Very creative. But it's about the people. It's about these guys who and these men and women who are they train for this, but they're doctors or they're musicians or they just do random stuff. Some of these folks are 17 years old. And I'm like, wow, are you serious that you can do this? And I'm 44 and would never even think about trying to climb a warped wall. Uh, you know, I could not look at a warped wall without falling over. And so I think that there's some, there's still that aspect of competitive game show, reality show stuff. I don't think it's to the bombasticness that American Gladiators is because of the fact that it feels a little bit um, satirical, farcical. And I think that's probably why the 2008 version didn't really last because we were sort of maturing as an audience. Um, capturing that nostalgia wasn't really there. And I think part of what the doc alludes to is the fact that it was a lot safer than the original game show was. I mean, we're talking about going from something like Running Man, that kind of like, oh my gosh, are they really going to get hurt? To more of something like everything's in cushions and stuff like that. So nobody's really going to get hurt. So for me, I would say that it's it's not really, I wouldn't say it's ready to come back unless you drastically changed what the focal point was. But I don't think you can do that because that's not what American Gladiators really was about. It was equally about the gladiators as it, as it was about the contenders. Yeah, I would agree. And I don't think that everything, this is a world that is obsessed with nostalgia, as we know, and everything is coming back. It's all about like taking what we used to know and just repurposing it and trying to recapture that magic for a whole new generation. And I'm a firm believer that sometimes things just exist because they work in the time that they existed. And at the time, there was nothing like this. There had never been anything like this. And the world's changed. Like you just said, I don't think that a new version of this would really compete with something like Ninja Warrior. I think that that's established itself as being better and more interesting. And yeah. so we've had com we've had competition shows like this. I've never watched them, but I know I've seen commercials where people are like running around across like, you know, spinning wheels and yeah. yeah okay. That's out. what it's called. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, you know, so I don't this think is the yeah, go ahead. I, I was just saying, I just don't think would people watch it? Somebody's going to watch it. Would I think it somebody will, but I be think enough what, to like mm -hmm. get multiple seasons and become something in the new zeitgeist. I don't think so. Right. And I think what you have is with Ninja Warrior and Wipeout, you have essentially the stuff that American Gladiator was combined to have. You had this sort of over the top kind of like super heroic people. Well, it's WWE type personalities. It's like professional yes. wrestling personalities. Right. And so when you add insane games to this, like Powerball or uh, or the the Eliminator, those types of things, you see elements of that in shows like Wipeout. The angle for a show like Wipeout, though, is to just intentionally watch, pe watch people just get pounded by these obstacles. Like you don't want them to necessarily you're not rooting for them to get through the obstacles. You're rooting for them to get hit by a 
giant ball that's going to hit them right in the face and knock them in the water. American Ninja Warrior, that's not what you're looking at. You want these competitors to go through and get through the obstacles without falling and in a time that is better than the person before them. And I think some of that lived in American Gladiators. It's sort of just been siphoned off into these two types of reality game show sports shows that appeals to different people. So the spirit of American Gladiators, I think, lives in those two shows. And a game like the, a show like Titan Games that was hosted by The Rock, which is closer to the American Gladiators. But still, I think the essence of what it was is sort of living vicariously through these other two shows. I agree. And I think the other side of like reality and docs and sports is something like F1's Drive to Survive or the NFL's Hard Knocks. And that's giving us deeper looks into the sports we already love and follow, not asking us to latch on to an entirely new competition and personalities. And I think great point. Yeah, that's great why point. those are able to succeed more because it's enhancing something we already like versus trying to get us to start and just add something new in a world of an overwhelming amount of content and options. Right. You know, tangentially, one of the things about the doc that we didn't ask him about and I thought was really interesting is there's this very brief section where a man named W. Peter Illiff comes on screen. And I think it flashes like, I don't know, they, I think they mentioned a couple of his credits. This guy is a screenwriter of such movies as Varsity Blues and Point Break, and he adapted Patriot Games. I had no idea who wrote those movies. Like, I'd never even thought about it. But this is the guy. And apparently at one point he had been tagged to make an American Gladiators movie because, you know, in the mid 2000s, they were like, all right, what's the next step? We got to turn this into something Hollywood so we can capitalize off of that. And the plot that they came up with and the way they talk about it in this documentary it sounded absolutely horrible and it would have bombed. I have no doubt. But do you think that there is a potential for a good story you could make out of an American Gladiators movie? If you took the same kind of approach that you take with something like the Meg or okay, um, just these big, loud, fun, put Michael Bay in the director's chair. And yes, you could do this because I think this is a type of story that his type of directorial style would absolutely eat up. And as someone who's not a fan of the guy, I think it would be wildly successful because it's just big and fun. And that's what you go to the theater for. And then it would be forgotten about within a year because it's just that. It's nothing that's going to turn heads and say, man, that was amazing. I think the concept of American Gladiators and what it stands for could live in a movie where it's just big fun and it's successful in that right. Yeah, I tend to say I think you're you're hitting on the head, maybe the only potential <laughs> that it would have. I think it's a very unlikely scenario and it you actually said it earlier it's running man like it's basically is kind of like running man but fake so why would that be better than watching yeah. just running man <laughs> you know <laughs> instead because it's got more stakes than an american gladiator movie um you know maybe that's what it is maybe it's the american gladiators but it turns really dark in the end and they have to fight for yes. their lives you know i i don't know i i don't see it working but i like the idea of Michael Bay. I would watch it if it was Michael Bay. So I a guess there's would. that. A, a lot, lot of people, people would. would. Sure. You'd automatically <laughs> yes. have it. Yep. Well, viewers and listeners can hear my personal thoughts and review of this on the podcast 
episode, but you weren't there. So I just wanted to give you a quick shot before we ended this. Do you have any thoughts on the documentary as a whole? Did you want to recommend it? Or now that Ben's off the air, did you have any criticisms that you wanted to put out? Ooh, now I can say what I really thought. No, I, no, it's it's good. It really is. And I think it fits in the same vein as um, you know, documentaries that were you know, having to do with the the monopoly scandal that that's showing on, on on Max now, this idea of interweaving interviews with docudrama and reenactments, I I just I love that stuff, and this documentary has that. I I wanted a little bit more of that, but only for my own personal taste. I don't think it necessarily needed it. Um, and so yeah, I think it I think it serves itself really well, and I would highly recommend it to any. 30 for 30 fan for sure. Like, I think this is a definite 30 for 30 doc and it should, it should definitely, you know, be proud of that moniker that it has with it. Yep. I pretty much agree. Well, that's it for us. Thank you guys for watching and listening and supporting the show. We appreciate it greatly. And we hope you enjoyed this interview and brief post game chat. We'll be back later. Bye-bye.